Chapter Seventeen, Part Three, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen, The Polar Journey, The Pole and After, Part Three. January twenty-third. Started off with a bit of a breeze, which helped us a little. Temperature minus twenty-eight degrees. After the first two hours, it increased to force four south-southwest and filling the sail we sped along merrily, doing eight and three-quarter miles before lunch. In the afternoon it was even stronger, and I had to go back on the sledge and act as a guide and a brakesman. We had to lower the sail a bit, but even then she ran like a bird. We are picking up our old cairns famously. Evans got his nose frostbitten, not an unusual thing with him, but as we are all getting pretty cold latterly, we stopped at a quarter to seven, having done sixteen and a half miles. We camped with considerable difficulty, owing to the force of the wind. The same night Scott wrote, We came along at a great pace, and should have got within an easy march of our one-and-a-half degree depot, had not Wilson suddenly discovered that Evans' nose was frostbitten. It was white and hard. We thought it best to camp at 6.45, got the tent up with some difficulty, and now pretty cosy after good hoosh. There is no doubt that Evans is a good deal run down, his fingers are badly blistered, and his nose is rather seriously congested with frequent frostbites. He is very much annoyed with himself, which is not a good sign. I think Wilson, Bowers, and I are as fit as possible under the circumstances. Oates gets cold feet. One way and another, I shall be glad to get off the summit. The weather seems to be breaking up. Bowers resumes the tale. January 24th. Evans has got his fingers all blistered with frostbites. Otherwise we are all well, but thinning, and, in spite of our good rations, get hungrier daily. I sometimes spend much thought on the march with plans for making a pig of myself on the first opportunity, as that will be after a further march of seven hundred miles, they are a bit premature. It was blowing a gale when we started, and it increased in force. Finally, with the sail half down, one man detached, trekking ahead, and tight as an eye breaking back, we could not always keep the sledge from overrunning. The blizzard got worse and worse, till, having done only seven miles, we had to camp soon after twelve o'clock. We had a most difficult job camping, and it has been blowing like blazes all the afternoon. I think it is moderating now, nine p.m. We are only seven miles from our depot, and this delay is exasperating. Scott wrote, This is the second full gale since we left the pole. I don't like the look of it. Is the weather breaking up? If so, God help us with the tremendous summit journey and scant food. Wilson and Bowers are my standby. I don't like the easy way in which Oates and Evans get frostbitten. January 25th. It was no use turning out at our usual time, 5.45 a.m., as the blizzard was as furious as ever. We therefore decided on a late breakfast and no lunch, unless able to march. We have only three days' food with us, and shall be in Queer Street if we miss the depot. Our bags are getting steadily wetter, so are our clothes. It shows a tendency to clear off now, breakfast time, so, D.V., we may march after all. I am in tribulation as regards meals now, as we have run out of salt, one of my favourite commodities. It is owing to Atkinson's party taking back an extra tin by mistake from the upper glacier depot. Fortunately we have some depot there, so I will only have to endure another two weeks without it. 10 p.m. We have got in a march after all. I thank the Lord. Assisted by the wind, we made an excellent run-down to our one-and-a-half-degree depot, 
where the big red flag was blowing out like fury with the breeze, in clouds of driving drift. Here we picked up one and a quarter cans of oil, and one week's food for five men, together with some personal gear depot. We left the bamboo and flag on the cairn. I was much relieved to pick up the depot. Now we only have one other source of anxiety on this endless snow summit, viz. the three-degree depot, in latitude 86 degrees, 56 minutes south. In the afternoon we did 5.2 miles. It was a miserable march, blizzard all the time, and our sledge either sticking in Sastrugi or overrunning the traces. We had to lower the sail half down, and Titus and I hung on to her. It was most strenuous work as well as much colder than pulling ahead. Most of the time we had to break back with all our strength to keep the sledge from overrunning. Bill got a bad go of snow glare from following the track without goggles on. This day last year we started the depot journey. I did not think so short a time would turn me into an old hand at polar travelling. Neither did I imagine at the time that I would be returning from the pole itself. Wilson was very subject to these attacks of snow blindness and also to headaches before blizzards. I have an idea that his anxiety to sketch whenever opportunity offered and his willingness to take off his goggles to search for tracks and cairns had something to do with it. This attack was very typical. I wrote this at lunch and in the evening had a bad attack of snow blindness. Blizzard in the afternoon. We only got in a forenoon march. Couldn't see enough of the tracks to follow at all. My eyes didn't begin to trouble me till tomorrow yesterday, though it was the strain of tracking and the very cold drift which we had to-day that gave me this attack of snow-glare. Marched on foot in the afternoon, as my eyes were too bad to go on ski. We had a lot of drift and wind, and very cold. Had ZNSO4 and cocaine in my eyes at night, and didn't get to sleep at all for the pain. Dozed about an hour in the morning only. Marched on foot again all day, as I couldn't see my way on ski at all. Birdie used my ski eyes still very painful and watering, tired out by the evening, had a splendid night's sleep, and though very painful across forehead to-night, they are much better. The surface was awful. In his diary of the day after they left the pole, January 19th, Wilson wrote an account of it. We had a splendid wind right behind us most of the afternoon, and went well until about 6 p.m., when the sun came out and we had an awful grind until 7.30 when we camped. The sun comes out on sandy drifts, all on the move in the wind, and temperature minus twenty degrees, and gives us an absolutely awful surface with no glide at all, for ski or sledge, and just like fine sand. The weather all day has been more or less overcast, with white broken alto stratus, and for three degrees above the horizon there is a grey belt, looking like a blizzard of drift, but this is, in reality, is caused by a constant fall of minute snow crystals, very minute. Sometimes, instead of crystal plates, the fall is of minute agglomerate spicules like tiny sea urchins. The plates glitter in the sun, as though of some size, but you can only just see them as pinpoints on your Burberry. So the spicule collections are only just visible. Our hands are never warm enough in camp to do any neat work now. The weather is always uncomfortably cold and windy, about minus twenty-three degrees, but after lunch today I got a bit of drawing done. All the joy had gone from their sledging. They were hungry, they were cold, the pulling was very heavy and two of them were not fit. As long ago as January 14th, Scott wrote that Oates was feeling the cold and fatigue more than the others, and again he refers to the matter on January 20th. On January 19th, Wilson wrote, We get our hairy faces and mouths dreadfully iced up on the march, and often one's hands very cold indeed holding ski-sticks. Evans, who cut his knuckle some days ago at the last depot, 
has a lot of pus in it tonight. January 20th. Evans has got four or five of his fingertips badly blistered by the cold. Titus also his nose and cheeks. Also Evans and Bowers. January 28th. Evans has a number of badly blistered finger ends which he got at the pole. Titus's big toe is turning blue-black. January 31st. Evans' fingernails are coming off. Very raw and sore. February 4th. Evans is feeling the cold a lot, always getting frostbitten. Titus's toes are blackening, and his nose and cheeks are dead yellow. Dressing Evans' fingers every other day with boric vaseline, they are quite sweet still. February 5th. Evans' fingers suppurating. Nose very bad, hard, and rotten-looking. Scott was getting alarmed about Evans, who has dislodged two fingernails tonight. His hands are really bad, and to my surprise he shows signs of losing heart over it. He hasn't been cheerful since the accident. The party is not improving in condition, especially Evans, who is becoming rather dull and incapable. Evans' nose is almost as bad as his fingers. He is a good deal crocked up. Bowers' diary, quoted above, finished on January 25th, on which day they picked up their one-and-a-half-degree depot. "'I shall sleep much better with our provision bag full again,' wrote Scott that night. "'Bowers got another rating sight to-night. It was wonderful how he managed to observe in such a horribly cold wind.' They marched sixteen miles the next day, but got off the outward track, which was crooked. On January 27th they did fourteen miles, on a very bad surface of deep-cut sastrugi all day, until late in the afternoon, when we began to get out of them. "'By Jove, this is tremendous labour,' said Scott. They were getting into the better surfaces again, 15.7 miles for January 28th. "'A fine day, and a good march on a very decent surface.' On January 29th Bowers wrote his last full day's diary. "'Our record marched today. With a good breeze and improving surface, we were soon in among the double tracks where the supporting party left us. Then we picked up the memorable camp where I transferred to the advance party. How glad I was to change over! The camp was much drifted up, and immense sastrugi were everywhere, south-south-east in direction, and south-east. We did 10.4 miles before lunch. I was breaking back on sledge and controlling. It was beastly cold, and my hands were perished. In the afternoon I put on my dogskin mitts, and was far more comfortable. A stiff breeze with drift continues. Temperature minus 25 degrees. Thank God our days of having to face it are over. We completed 19.5 miles, 22 statute, this evening, and so are only 29 miles from our precious three-degree depot. It will be bad luck indeed if we do not get there in a march and a half, anyhow. 19 miles again on January 30th, but during the previous day's march Wilson had strained a tendon in his leg. I got a nasty bruise on the tibialis anticus, which gave me great pain in the afternoon. My left leg exceedingly painful all day, so I gave Birdie my ski and hobbled alongside the sledge on foot. The whole of the tibialis anticus is swollen and tight, and full of tenosynovitis, and the skin red and edematous over the shin. But we made a very fine march with the help of a brisk breeze. January 31st. Again walking by the sledge with swollen leg, but not nearly so painful. We had 5.8 miles to go to reach the three-degree depot. Pick this up with a week's provision and a line from Evans, and then for lunch an extra biscuit each, making four for lunch and one-tenth of a whack of butter extra as well. Afternoon we passed Cairn where Birdie's ski had been left. These we picked up, and came on till 7.30pm, when the wind, which had been very light all day, dropped, 
and with temperature minus twenty degrees it felt delightfully warm and sunny and clear. We have one-tenth extra pemmican in the hoosh now also. My leg pretty swollen again tonight. They travelled 13.5 miles that day, and 15.7 on the next. My leg much more comfortable, gave me no pain, and I was able to pull all day, holding on to the sledge. Still some edema. We came down a hundred feet or so today on a fairly steep gradient. They were now approaching the crevassed surfaces and the ice-falls which marked the entrance to the Beardmore Glacier, and February 2nd was marked by another accident, this time to Scott. On a very slippery surface I came an awful purler on my shoulder. It is horribly sore to-night, and another sick person added to our tent, three out of five injured, and the most troublesome surfaces to come. We shall be lucky if we get through without serious injury. Wilson's leg is better, but might easily get bad again, and Evans' fingers. We have managed to get off seventeen miles. The extra food is certainly helping us, but we are getting pretty hungry. The weather is already a trifle warmer, the altitude lower, and only eighty miles or so to Mount Darwin. It is time we were off the summit. Pray God another four days will see us pretty well clear of it. Our bags are getting very wet, and we ought to have more sleep. They had been spending some time in finding the old tracks, but they had a good landfall for the depot at the top of the glacier, and on February 3rd they decided to push on due north, and to worry no more for the present about tracks and cairns. They did sixteen miles that day. Wilson's diary runs, Sunny and breezy again, came down a series of slopes, and finished the day by going up one. Enormous deep cuts astrugian drifts and shiny eggshell surface. Wind all south-south-easterly. Today, at about eleven p.m., we got our first sight again of mountain peaks on our eastern horizon. We crossed the outmost line of crevassed ridge-top today, the first on our return. February 4th. Eighteen miles. Clear, cloudless blue sky, surface drift. During forenoon we came down gradual descent, including two or three irregular terrace slopes, on crest of one of which were a good many crevasses. Southernmost were just big enough for Scott and Evans to fall in to their waists, and very deceptively covered up. They ran east and west. Those nearer the crest were the ordinary broad street-like crevasses, well lidded. In the afternoon we again came to a crest, before descending, with street crevasses, and one we crossed at a huge hole where the lid had fallen in, big enough for a horse and cart to go down. We have a great number of mountain-tops on our right and south of our beam as we go due north now. We are now camped just below a great crevassed mound, on a mountain-top, evidently. February 5th, 18.2 miles. We had a difficult day, getting in amongst a frightful chaos of broad, chasm-like crevasses. We kept too far east, and had to wind in and out amongst them, and cross multitudes of bridges. We then bore west a bit, and got on better, all the afternoon, and got round a good deal of the upper disturbances of the falls here. Scott wrote, we are camped in a very disturbed region, but the wind has fallen very light here, and our camp is comfortable for the first time for many weeks. February 6th, 15 miles. We again had a forenoon of trying to cut corners, got in amongst great chasms running east and west, and had to come out again. We then again kept west and downhill over tremendous sastrugi, with a slight breeze, very cold. In afternoon continued bearing more and more towards Mount Darwin, we got round one of the main lines of ice-fall, and looked back up to it. Very cold march. Many crevasses. I, walking by the sledge on foot, found a good many. The others all on ski. February 7th, 15.5 miles. 
clear day again and we made a tedious march in the forenoon along a flat or two and down a long slope and then in the afternoon we had a very fresh breeze and a very fast run down long slopes covered with big sastrugi it was a strenuous job steering and checking behind by the sledge we reached the upper glacier depot by seven thirty p m and found everything right this was the end of the plateau the beginning of the glacier their hard time should be over so far as the weather was concerned Wilson notes how fine the land looked as they approached it. The colour of the Dominion Range rock is in the main all brown madder or dark reddish chocolate, but there are numerous bands of yellow rock scattered amongst it. I think it is composed of dolerite and sandstone as on the west side. End of chapter 17, part 3